The business of culture, the culture of business, newsmakers, media and technology, policy, authors, voices of America. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad, and we are live with NPR's Steven Skeeve. Lincoln was told effectively by Lean Bear, you've brought the wrong people to the White House to urge peace. There's a risk of war in Colorado, and the risk comes from the white settlers who are not keeping their word, not keeping their treaties, and not treating us well. I will keep the peace as long as I can. I can't say the same for them. On stage with us at the University of Richmond's Robbins School of Business, the Morning Edition host and prolific author on his latest book, Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. I have at least three score and seven minutes of questions for our esteemed <laughs> guest, so do stay with us. This special taping of Full Disclosure Live was made possible by the generous support of the Robbins School of Business at the University of Richmond. The Robbins School prepares students to make an impact by providing a dynamic learning community where real-world teaching practices, scholarship, and service are at the forefront of the curriculum. More at robbins.richmond.edu. And by Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence. Recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and all fine podcatchers. A shout out to Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station, our home station. You can catch us on Apple, Spotify, NPR One. The link, please subscribe and call your girlfriend, is fullderadio.com. Again, fullderadio.com. And we are on all the socials at handle Full D Radio. Joining me on stage at the University of Richmond's Robbins School of Business, Steve Inskeep, co-host of NPR's Morning Edition, the most widely heard radio program in the United States, and you hear him on NPR's Up First, but we want to talk about his book, which was published last year, Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. Please help me welcome Mr. Inskeep. You know, Steve, what I love about this is that this is a kind of the closest thing to a Lincoln management book. And we are at a business school. The powers of persuasion, dissuasion, managing people, managing people up, managing people out. And I was struck by that really when it got to the chapter with McClellan, his problematic, <laughs> his problematic general at the beginning of the Civil War, yeah. which kind of bordered like on insubordination. If you know you were doing a drunk history on this, it would be like, all right, hey, George, it's uh, Lincoln. Uh, do you want to maybe uh, invade? Do you want a war? Uh, I'd be like, no, actually, no, I don't. It is an amazing story. Uh, to me, anyway, it was amazing to me to discover some of these meetings. And you talk about management and the power of persuasion this tells Lincoln's life story through 16 meetings he had with people who differed with him, different backgrounds and so forth, and also disagreements. And in some cases, they're people he failed to persuade, uh, that you couldn't just use some honeyed words and get somebody to the other side. I'm not sure that he ever persuaded his general, George McClellan, of anything, but his job was to take this subordinate who called Lincoln in a letter to his wife an idiot and get some value out of him in a desperate, desperate situation for the country where Lincoln had made the mistake, really, of promoting McClellan to the top general's job. What is it about Lincoln and consensus that you were kind of trying to say, you know, fish or cut bait? This is life or death. Yeah, it's he's, life he's or death. dithering, he's prevaricating, you gotta be an executive. Yeah, yeah, you have to somehow get some value out of this person and know how to use this person. I guess I should give a little bit of the backstory. Abraham Lincoln was elected president in 1860, became president in 1861. He was an anti-slavery president and 11 Southern states, including the state where we're sitting now, uh, tried to leave the union over the issue of slavery. The South fired the first shot in the Civil War, and the war was on and became this massive conflict, the deadliest war in um, American history. And it is a bit of a lesson in management in that Lincoln was figuring out how to be president, how to president, you might say, and making a lot of mistakes at the beginning. 
and it was an increasingly urgent situation. The United States was building up an army to fight this Confederate army that it was building up to oppose it, and Lincoln needed generals who were willing to fight. And McClellan was a young man from an elite background, a talented guy, a very smart guy, there's no doubt about that, who had won a relatively minor military victory, and it got into the newspapers, he got some publicity, and he was immediately promoted to the top army job, and then became the commander of all U.S. military forces. But he was an individual, psychologically it seems to me, who was insecure. He wanted to work out all the details of the problem he was facing and solve it. And that made him a great organizer, it turns out, of an army. He organized what was called the Army of the Potomac and made it a tremendous fighting force. But then when he got onto the battlefield, a different set of skills was called for. Because you can't figure out all the angles on the battlefield. The enemy has a vote. You have to be prepared for the unexpected. And he would freeze. He would slow down and try to gather more and more information and end up demanding more and more reinforcements. I mean, he was like the, if you're a manager, he's like the employee who always needs a bigger budget, always needs more people to get the job done, can't get the job done on time. And you said almost insubordinate, like, you could even go beyond that, Robin, because eventually Lincoln was Lincoln was making suggestions. I would like you to advance on Richmond uh, or advance on the in very polite Army. Victorian terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it would be very nice. Yes, you it, could consider so nice. Imagine what, what winning this war would be like. Um, and McClellan didn't want to do it. Uh, he gave, finally gave him a direct order, and McClellan just ignored it. Uh, treated it more as a suggestion than an order and one that he wasn't going to follow. McClellan finally did his own plan to do a waterborne invasion of Richmond. We are in Richmond, so you're aware it is not a city on the coast, but they... <laughs> I mean, it's really one of the great, great facts. Like, it wasn't... You did, they didn't get that much closer than if he just marched overland from Washington, D.C., but they went down the Chesapeake Bay and up the river and, and landed the army in this kind of great D-Day-style invasion, except they were still far from Richmond. And then McClellan had trouble fighting uh, after that. It was an enormous set of frustrations for the president of the United States. And aside from the personality conflicts, they had a substantive conflict. There were a lot of different views of slavery in the 1860s, and McClellan's was not Lincoln's. Lincoln believed that slavery was wrong, and he opposed it, and he was on his way toward the Emancipation Proclamation, which was going to take enslaved labor away from the South and turn a lot of them into soldiers for the North. He was on his way to that. And McClellan had grown up with a set of views that he did not believe in that, did not believe that slavery should be touched at all. So they had this personality difference, they had a tactics and strategy difference, and they even had a political difference. And the story that I try to tell in that particular chapter is how Lincoln finally got some value out of this guy, finally got some use out of it. Take me back to Lincoln's childhood. There was a line in it that, you know, for a child to process misery at a very early age is just the cruelest of cuts because that brain doesn't know how to process it. Yeah. And he led a depressive life, mostly he lost children. He, his wife was a manic depressive at the very least. Um, uh, but he had an empathy coming out of it that I remember the scene with the shackled fiddler. Yeah. Was it on a boat? Yeah. Like in the antebellum period, not yeah. quite the 1860s yet. Yeah. Um, Talk to me about that. Um, that's an extraordinary uh, moment. It is the only moment in which Lincoln recorded his own experience of meeting an enslaved person. He said that he had encountered them many times, and it seems reasonable that he would have. He was born in a slave state, Kentucky. Uh, he then moved to Indiana and to Illinois, which were kind of borderline slavery, like people would bring their slaves through. Um, and he had friends in Kentucky, and he returned to Kentucky in 1841, and then boarded a steamboat at Louisville, Kentucky, for this kind of circuitous route back to Illinois, and they spent several days on the steamboat. Um, he had just been visiting the family home of his best friend, who had grown up on a farm with more than 50 enslaved people. So he had encountered this luxury of the slave-owning family of a luxury that, of a kind that he had never known. Um, and after that experience, boarded this boat, and there were a dozen men on the boat who had been chained together. 
In a letter, Lincoln said they were like so many fish on a trot line and they were being shipped out of state because slavery was in decline in what was called the Upper South and the owners were doing what you do with surplus goods in a market economy. This was their human property. They didn't need as many and so they shipped them farther south where the climate was worse and the labor was often harder and people would be worked <clears throat> to death. And Lincoln recounted the story of one of these men who had been sold away because of what Lincoln called an over-fondness for his wife. And we can think about what exactly that even means in the context of someone in a slave uh, economy and on a plantation somewhere, on a farm somewhere in Kentucky. But he'd been sold away from his wife. He'd been sold away from anybody he'd ever known. And he was on this boat uh, and he was chained to these other men and he had a fiddle and he was playing a fiddle and uh, entertaining his fellow captives along the way. And Lincoln remembered this, wrote a long letter about it, referred to it 14 years later in another letter. And in this case, he was writing to his best friend who'd come from this slaveholding family. And he said, how can you say that I have no interest in slavery? when this has such power to make me miserable. Then why didn't he have the courage of his convictions to say that out loud? You get the impression from this book that he wanted to please a lot of people. He was on this long road to maybe house yeah. politics and, and who knows the White House, I mean. Yeah, I think that there's, there's, there's room to criticize Lincoln there because of his approach to slavery. But I should be clear, he always, when he spoke publicly about it, was consistent in his views. He never pretended it was fine. He never pandered to people who believed it was great. In his very first public statement about slavery as a young state legislator in Illinois, he said that slavery was based on injustice and bad policy. But you were correctly referring to his care in how he would craft an approach against it. Lincoln lived in a time when the Constitution was interpreted to defend slavery when it was believed and understood that an individual state that had slavery, that nobody from outside that state could say anything about it, do anything about it. And there was an unbelievable infrastructure of law in individual states and across the country, as well as custom, as well as prejudice and tradition and economic interest, of which there was a lot, um, that held that system in place. And he believed and understood there was nothing he could do to eliminate it tomorrow. He did not call to eliminate it tomorrow. He believed in the rule of law. And so what he ended up supporting instead was restricting slavery, containing it in the hope that it eventually would end. I would defend that on two grounds while acknowledging the criticism of it. One is that he was always clear in his moral belief. He never thought it was just fine. He never thought it was maybe not such a good thing. Like he never had mixed views about the institution itself. And he was attempting to find a practical way to act against it, which ultimately he did. And just in the same way we tend to bifurcate things in 2024 as red versus blue back then, kind of the incipient gray versus blue, there were thousands of shades of that. Yes. There were nativists. Yeah. There were people who were mildly abolitionists but didn't want to force the issue. Again, there was this Victorian kind of leave tradition to tradition in the interest of keeping this delicate experiment together. Please don't talk yeah. about it. Let it just die on the vine. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah, no, it's a really remarkable thing and something that we can relate to today. Lincoln had this idea of people that they acted out of self-interest, which sounds kind of cynical and dark, but is also just real. We have to look after our own interests. And he realized that he was not going to make any progress on slavery or any other issue unless he engaged the self-interest of voters. A majority of people needed to see an interest for them in the cause that he was supporting, although he tried to mesh that appeal to self-interest with a higher cause, ultimately in, in, uh, in, in slavery. He was talking to an electorate, as you, as you very correctly said, that had an incredibly wide range of views. It's strange to think about today. It actually takes a moment to get your brain around the idea that there were multiple views of slavery. We can envision two, right, wrong, and one of them is almost <coughs> unbelievable to even consider. They had many, as you just said, and there were many people who 
understood slavery to be wrong and spoke out against it. There were people who sincerely believed to be right in the proper organization of humanity and the way that things ought to be. And there were a lot of people in the middle who might say slavery is an evil and uncomfortable, but we've inherited it, and I myself am going to be a slave owner because I've inherited human beings. And there were people who said, this is evil and wrong, but then they would begin rationalizing as to why they shouldn't do anything about it. I mean, what if we have to live among a three million freed black people? People were really afraid of that, white people, I should clarify. And so there was an incredible range of beliefs and Lincoln's political challenge was, how do I reach in among this range of people and find a majority to do anything, to do any one thing? And this really is relevant today on many levels, one of them being management and personalities, as you correctly said, and another uh, being the politics of this moment. How do we do anything about climate change, really, or how do we do enough? How do we do enough about any number of other things that are less controversial? I mean, infrastructure, paying off the national debt, education in this country, what's right to teach people, what is wrong to teach people. How do we get a proper majority to move the country in the right direction? It's a tremendous challenge today as it was to him. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are live with Steve Inskeep, the co-host of Morning Edition. It's America's most widely heard radio program. Everybody's familiar with his voice. The bestseller, the book published in 2023, is Different We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. Steve, while you're here, I have to borrow your mellifluous voice. Uh, read something. Whoa! Sure. Okay. And what the amazing irony is that Steve wakes up earlier than roosters, but he's a lot more mellifluous. Day in, day out. You got what time do you wake up? Okay, many people ask that. Um, <laughs> on days that I do the show, I um, and I'm trying to flip through a page at the same time that I'm doing this. I get up at three o'clock in the morning. People are horrified when I say that. I get to work at four, and morning edition must begin every day at five a.m. <clears throat> Eastern time to the second, never one second late. Um, then every day is different. We have this live program, and then we go into other things. I may be working ahead for a different day's show, or there may be urgent live coverage that lasts all morning until noon, depending on the, on the news. So every day is different. On this day that you and I are talking, I did get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Can I just take a couple seconds here? I would like Please. to read you something from the chapter that is set in this little place called uh, Richmond, Virginia. <laughs> And I will tell you. And while you're looking, I have to say that was really striking to me that, you know, as the war is coming to an end and, and Lincoln's own assassination is approaching and you have swaths of Richmond set on fire by retreating Confederate troops, that you have this apparition like figure with not that much security. I mean, yeah. he's going in between a pontoon boat on the James and the old capital of the Confederacy, and he isn't kicking up his feet exactly. It's, it's a very kind of modest, somber yeah. exercise. I mean, it's hard to imagine the Secret Service signing off on this particular trip for a president today. So it's April 1865. The Civil War has been going for almost exactly four years. Finally, Richmond, the capital of the Confederacy, falls. The Confederate Army retreats with an idea that they will continue the fight, although it ends up lasting only a few more days. General Lee goes away. The Confederate troops go away. As they go, they set fire to the tobacco warehouses downtown, and other things catch on fire, and a large part of Richmond is torched to the extent that smoke hangs in a pall over the city for days. And it happens that Lincoln is at the headquarters of the Union General, General Grant, just a few miles outside town at City Point. He knew that this moment was coming and was on hand for it and wanted to see Richmond for himself. Got on a steamboat with, uh, this uh, guy named Admiral Porter, in fact, it was a little flotilla of steamboats, and they went up the James, which is a tidal river, and the boats began running aground as they went to shallower and shallower water, and finally they had to transfer into a small boat, and they ended up at Rocket's Landing, which is a couple of miles from the absolute dead center of town, which apparently his guide, Admiral Porter, had no idea. He thought they were going to get off at the landing and go to the military headquarters, but it was a couple miles away. They disembarked at the steamboat landing. Porter didn't know the city, so he couldn't know they faced a walk of more than two miles to the new army headquarters in the center of town. They'd gone only a few steps when they encountered several black men 
who recognized Lincoln. <clears throat> Porter had a tendency to dramatize the stories he told, but it may well have been, as he later said, the man who regarded Lincoln as his liberator knelt at the president's feet. Lincoln told the man he shouldn't do that. The crowd grew as the president walked. Quiet streets came alive with people, while others came to the upper windows of the buildings. Lincoln had trouble moving, and Porter began to worry. While the freed people would never harm the president, he couldn't say who else was in town. He ordered 12 sailors from the barge to take up rifles with bayonets to clear the way. People continued reaching out to touch the president or talk with him. It was a warm day, Porter said. The atmosphere was suffocating, but Mr. Lincoln could be seen plainly by every man, woman, and child, towering head and shoulders above the crowd. His face was covered in perspiration. He stopped once and said a few words to the men and women whose freedom he had decreed. He said they were as free as air. And then he tried to move, but people could not be made to understand that they were detaining the president, Porter said. They looked upon him as belonging to them. At the newly established Union Army headquarters, the soldiers took note of an immense crowd of the people down the street and gradually realized it was the president's vast bodyguard with Lincoln, Porter, and the sailors in the center. A moment of history here in Richmond, Virginia. And as this happened, was it at the old Confederate uh, capital that he meets an old friend uh, who yes. was an antebellum Supreme Court justice? Yes. It's and, and it's one of these quirks of history. This was before Appomattox. And, uh, and and Lee, you know, surrendering formally, of which Lincoln's son witnessed. Yes. History could have ended differently. Uh, history could have ended a little bit differently. It is a fascinating story. Um, Lincoln got himself to the, what is now known as the White House of the Confederacy. Maybe, I forget if it was known exactly by that yeah, then, yeah, but it's a tourist site today, I know. And walked around Jefferson Davis's house, walked around his rival's house, the other president's house, and met this, uh, learned that this man was in town and sent for him. John A. Campbell had been a member of the United States Supreme Court. He was part of the majority that decided the Dred Scott case in favor of slavery in 1857. He uh, believed, and this is a remarkable thing, he believed that secession was wrong, but decided to do it anyway. Um, lingered in Washington longer than other people, but finally went home to Alabama uh, and did nothing for a couple of years, but then agreed to become the Assistant Secretary of War for the Confederacy. And so he was in Richmond, and when all the rest of the government fled, he stayed because he had met Lincoln, he knew Lincoln, and he thought he could negotiate some proper end where Virginians could resume the governance of their affairs. Lincoln talked to this man who had been in rebellion against him, who had violated his oath to the United States. Lincoln talked with this guy and tried to do a deal with him to get the Virginia army, General Lee's army, to surrender because he knew that would end the rebellion. In the end, it ultimately did not work out, and Lincoln withdrew the deal for various reasons because the federal government was determined to reconstruct, to build a new government in Virginia and not allow the old one to reassemble even for the purpose of surrendering the army. But it says to me the lengths to which Lincoln would go and the way that his mind operated. And also that he was a little tricky because um, he wrote a letter about this saying that the gentlemen who have acted as the legislature of Virginia shall assemble for the purpose of telling the army to surrender. Um, but when pressed on this later, he said, I did not admit that they actually were the legitimate legislature of Virginia, which I don't want them to be. I said they acted as a legislature. See, isn't that, isn't that hair splitting? Isn't that very kind of slippery? Why, yes. As a matter of yourself. fact, it is. I yes. mean, he's, he's this, this renowned yes. canonized president, but this person was winging it, and a lot was done on faith. He walked in. I imagine nobody patted him down. This is a person who could have been arrested for yeah. treason right on the scene. Totally. But I think you recognize him. You have certain honor and magnanimity. You were a Supreme Court justice. You were half-hearted about succession. But still, 
Uh, he even gave himself an out. And continuously in this book, he kept giving himself yeah, out. No, it's a remarkable thing. And this is a thing that I want people to know about Lincoln, or at least that I did not understand uh, at all before doing the research on this book. There's so much that I felt that I learned that I did not know in doing this research. And one is that while Lincoln is famous for his words, the Gettysburg Address, the second inaugural, he was an amazing public speaker and writer. He should be nearly as famous for the things that he did not say because he would hold his fire, he would decline to say things to the point where people thought that Honest Abe was deceptive. Um, one of his friends said that he would speak with such seeming candor as to give his visitor the idea that he had disclosed all his plans and purposes when in reality to have spoke, he had spoken so carefully as to have disclosed nothing. Um, and I mean, you don't want that to go too far. I mean, you wouldn't actually want to deceive people but there is a kind of political cleverness in that. And it gets to that question of assembling a coalition of people to do what you think is right, to do what you think needs to be done, even though they have a great variety of views. Full disclosure, please do stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, and all fine podcatchers. The link, please subscribe and tell your friends and rate us, is FullDRadio.com. Again, FullDRadio.com. A shout out to our listeners on NPR member station, WVTF, Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. We are on WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina. We are on KPPQ out in Ventura. Holler if you too would like us on your air. My DMs, alas, are always open. If you are just joining us, we are live at the University of Richmond's Robin School of Business with Steve Inskeep, co-host of NPR's Morning Edition, uh, the voice that launched a thousand breakfasts, <laughs> a million breakfasts. The book, which I adored, is Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. There's some foreshadowing and foreboding in the fact that this was such a flat structure and anybody could kind of walk in and you quote Walt Whitman. You know, Lincoln, this guy with the big hat, you just see him in dark clothes going across D.C., yeah. the swampy area yeah. around Foggy Bottom. But he was accessible. Uh, you tell the story of Lean Bear. You tell the story of Frederick Douglass, who even on the trip to go and see Lincoln, and they've clearly read about each other and they respected each other from yeah. afar, was afraid that he was going to be confiscated in a border state. Yeah. So I was heartbroken at kind of how the Lean Bear story played out, if you could discuss yeah, that for yeah, me. Yeah, this is a story of which I knew nothing. In 1863, four, uh, a number of Plains Indians leaders uh, were brought, more than four, were brought to the White House to meet with the President of the United States. And they were supposed to be awed by the majesty of the United States and be so impressed and intimidated that they would never go to war against the United States. That was ultimately the idea. And Lincoln listened to them give a few speeches and gave a little speech of his own. And it's a powerful and poignant tale because several of the men who came to that meeting with the President of the United States were killed within a year. One of them was a Cheyenne leader named Lean Bear. He was what was known as a peace chief, meaning that he believed in dealing properly with the white men who were moving into their land in what is now the state of Colorado. And he came to Lincoln and developed, delivered what I find to be a quite eloquent speech. I was able to reconstruct it from several newspaper accounts. And in this speech, Lincoln was told effectively by Lean Bear, you've brought the wrong people to the White House to urge peace. There's a risk of war in Colorado, and the risk comes from the white settlers who are not keeping their word, not keeping their treaties, and not treating us well. I will keep the peace as long as I can. I can't say the same for them. And ultimately, this arrangement did not work out for Lincoln. He had invited the wrong people. Lean Bear returned to Colorado, uh, as did the other native leaders, after a bizarre stop uh, at P.T. Barnum's museum in New York City, where they agreed to be put on like showpieces among the animals. Uh, very strange, strange American episode. They went back out west. Uh, they were further abused. And white settlers uh, attacked and massacred Cheyenne and Arapaho and others at multiple locations, including the Sand Creek Massacre. And Lean Bear himself was out hunting with other people and saw soldiers approaching and said, there really shouldn't be any trouble here. I don't want to fight. I'm going to go forward. 
to talk to the troops and explain things to them. And as he approached the troops alone, they killed him. And he brandished the letter. He had with him, it is said, a peace medal that he had been given on his visit to the White House. This, to me, is an example of the tragedy of Indian relations in this country. And it's a thing that Lincoln didn't do particularly well. I don't know that he did it any worse than any other president, but it was not his priority. And he didn't ultimately get the one thing that he did want, which was peace. He wanted to focus on the Civil War, this other much bigger war that he was dealing with. But the federal government ended up having to divert troops to Colorado to uh, fight this war against the Cheyenne, which the white settlers themselves had provoked. Do you have any uh, evidence that this anecdote got back to Lincoln? I don't. He, I don't know that he Because you learned. wonder, I mean, yes, there are a million fires to put out, and you're chiefly thinking about the border states, the Emancipation Proclamation, and their various tiers of this, the nativists, and my keeping what we have of the Union together and the cities that I've recaptured. And some would argue that this is just the diversion to the West, to the far West. But it's still devastating to read. It's devastating. That someone got to see the president. It's yeah. so unlikely. It's unlikely now. And it was super unlikely in 1863. Yeah, no, it, it, it could have been different had Lincoln uh, had the time or had space or thought to apply a different policy. But you also realize some of the brutal realities of politics. White officials might recognize that a benevolent, as they would say, policy toward Indians was wise. Peace was smart. It was cheaper. It wasn't necessary to go to war against people. You could make treaties. You could do things. It was all going to be fine. But they could not control white settlers, who in this case had discovered gold in Colorado and were going to do what they wanted to do. Um, and in that instance, Federal officials would not say we must send the army out to control the white settlers and keep our word to native nations. Federal officials would say, man, there's nothing we can do here and we're going to end up fighting a war against white settlers if we try to do anything. So I guess it's just it's like the weather. It's like a hurricane. There's nothing you poor Indians can do. There's nothing we can really do to help you. So I guess we need to get you to sign an even worse peace treaty than the one we violated before. <laughs> I mean, that was the, the dynamic. Steve, I want to quote from some of the chapter on, sure. on Frederick Douglass. And I, I think in the entire through line in this thing, Frederick Douglass is one of these people on the sidelines is like, you know, show him some conviction, man. Say it like you mean it, Lincoln. And but he does understand. He ultimately does come around. And I think yeah. in this chapter, they met at the White House and long afterward, Douglass reflected on their personal connection. I account partially for his kindness to me because of the similarity with which I had fought my way up. Yeah. We both starting at the lowest round of the ladder. Yet he didn't entirely trust the administration. This was Douglass. Told of Stanton's proposal to make him an officer, Lincoln said he'd sign any commission Stanton sent him. He later signed a letter to assure Frederick Douglass's safe passage in the South. Douglass returned to Rochester and prepared to leave going so far as to shut down his newspaper, but a commission never arrived in the mail, and Douglas didn't want to travel south on faith without receiving the paper. Yeah. Lincoln eventually did commission other black officers, but for whatever reason, Douglas never joined the army. He resumed lending his name to the Union cause. Sometimes his speech has mentioned his meeting with the president, which was itself an advertisement for equality. He said Lincoln was, quote, wise, great, and eloquent, but above all, honest about political reality. Yeah. Now, that last part... Uh, is something that Douglas and Lincoln had in common. Douglas goes to the White House to protest against the unequal treatment of black soldiers, black soldiers who'd been enlisted in the army in many cases after being freed from slavery, soldiers who then were asked to fight for about half the pay of white men. After Douglas, as an army recruiter, had promised them equal pay, soldiers who felt they were more in danger on the battlefield than white men, because if they were captured, they thought they would be executed, and soldiers who had no possibility of promotion because the officers were all white. And Douglas came to protest against this treatment, and Lincoln effectively admitted it and said, this was because of political reality. I'm doing what I can do. I'm working on it. And he did, in fact, work on it. He ultimately got equal pay for black soldiers. But the challenge for each of these men was to balance the ideal, what they knew was right, against the possible in a republic where everybody looks after their own interests and you maybe can't get everybody to go for the ideal, at least not right now. I think Douglas was 
an eloquent spokesman who denounced Lincoln often and in public and even called him racist, and was also a pragmatist who understood that Lincoln and his Republican Party were going to achieve the great end for which Douglas had struggled. Lincoln was also a pragmatist who understood that slavery was wrong and was constantly finding the thing that he could get away with, the thing that he could do within the system, within the Constitution, which he believed in deeply, that could advance that cause. On that level, in addition to their modest upbringing, they understood each other. And I'm going to say one more thing. Douglas is awfully generous there, I think. Lincoln was born poor. His mother died when he was young. He was doing manual labor from the age of seven. Uh, it was not a pleasant childhood, but it was in its time a kind of ordinary childhood, and he was born free. Douglas was born several rungs lower on the ladder and fought his own way up. So in a way, it's a generous and a very human remark that Douglas makes there. Can't help but think of one of my favorite movies, Glory, 1989. Yeah. Uh, Matthew Broderick, Denzel Washington, the late actor, was it Andre? There was that scene where the uh, troops approached uh, Lincoln. Maybe it was apocryphal or fictional, but said we should get the right of parity on wages. Give us boots. Give us other things. In the end, I mean, it's fact in this. They charged Fort Wagner. They helped yes. wrest back control of South Carolina. They were willing to die for their convictions, to be free or for others to be free. They were willing to die. And from a management perspective, it made a lot of sense kind of in mergers and acquisitions. And I don't want this to sound cliche, I really don't. But you're emboldening your military while depleting the ranks of yeah. plantation owners. Oh, it's numbers, it's numbers. Like, you know, if you work for a consulting firm, you would appreciate this. I mean, Lincoln thought of the Emancipation Proclamation as a manpower thing on one level. You're taking a laborer away from the South because you're freeing the man from slavery and you're enlisting them in the army. So you get a double advantage. I mean, the numbers were really, were really great. And that's another example when you talk about the heroism of those men fighting for themselves and their freedom and the freedom of other people and the ruthless practicality of just getting the numbers to work out, to win the number, numbers game, even if some of those people were going to die. I mean, th those are some of the complicated and brutal realities of war and of politics. And, and willing to do it when if and when they were captured, they well could have been tortured. Yeah. Right, because these rules or were killed. in place. Or, or killed. killed, yeah. Yeah, um, that's what they expected to be. Nobody was treated well, but it was thought at the time that they would be killed if they, if they were taken into custody. Talk to me, Steve, about the what-ifs. I think about Lincoln... Um, so fresh into his second term. And it's not like he really, there's all this stuff about the martyrdom if you compare 1860 Lincoln to his 1864 count. Can I just notice, you're, as you're saying this, you're going like this down your beard. Yeah, I, I drew this for Lincoln the show. Can we get a round of applause for the man's beard? <laughs> Thank you. There's a wonderful chapter about Lincoln's total, barber. This is a total aside, but I want to tell you that I met Abraham Lincoln last uh, last fall <laughs> because there is an annual meeting called the Lincoln Forum where Lincoln scholars hang out with Lincoln groupies and they sell Lincoln folk art and all kinds of stuff like that. And there was Abraham Lincoln, a Lincoln impersonator who just kind of looked like Lincoln, although he was dressed, you know, like me. He wasn't dressed. Well, it's interesting that you brought this up. I was inspired because you have this chapter on Lincoln's barber uh -huh. in the Midwest William and it's Florida. a person of, of Haitian extraction. And that could have changed the course of U.S.-Haiti relations. Yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> Tell us about it. it arguably did. William Florville was an immigrant from Haiti, effectively a refugee from a messed up country that was messed up partly because the United States and many other nations refused to recognize its independence for generations. And he came <clears throat> to the United States. He ended up in Springfield, Illinois, the city where Lincoln was living, and cut Lincoln's hair for possibly as many as 20 years. And they were friends, they knew each other's kids, they lived close to one another, and yet they lived legally in separate worlds because Florville was a black man. Illinois was a free state, but they had black laws, separate laws that denied black men the right to vote or to serve on juries or to testify in court. And they had to prove that they were free and not escaped from somewhere. Um, and yet they were, they were close in a way, these two men. They probably disagreed on some things. I think that their disagreement involved like the idea of colonization, of sending free black people overseas. Lincoln advocated this from time to time. It's hard to believe that Florville was for it, but they got along. And yes, ultimately, when Lincoln decided to grow a beard, he grew what's called a Shenandoah beard, where it's down away from the mouth and off the upper lip, and it's kind of along the chin. 
And so like a C. Everett Coop. Yeah, there you go. It's exactly C. Everett, it's C. Everett Coop. And so you have to do a little bit of sculpting with the razor. And so Florville, this black man, had something to do with the creation of one of the most potent political symbols in American history, the most famous beard until Robin began to grow one. And then Lincoln, early in his presidency, one of the first steps that he took, overt steps that he took to affirm that he was in favor of a more equal world was extend U.S. diplomatic recognition to Haiti, his barber's home country, which 13 presidents before him had declined to do. And it's hard to believe that has nothing to do with whatever connection he'd gained through Florville and Springfield. Now, what on 1864, 1865 and beyond, uh, clearly there was something in the air that he knew the end must have been near. Um, he's walking around without bodyguards, or it was loosely guarded at Ford's Theater, yeah. that he was fatalistic around Mary. They suffered the loss of two boys. Her depression and her insularity was increasingly dire. What is it about that era? And I think about kind of the what if. Do you imagine, and when I read about this and his evolution of his thinking and his management and his powers of persuasion, if it wasn't left to an Andrew Johnson Oh, to prosecute it so reconstruction. It, it could have been so By the different. way, I was yeah. thinking about that. I think for the first time in history, a Confederate flag made it into the Capitol Dome on January 6, 2021. Yeah, that's true. The that didn't happen during the Civil that. War. So there is unfinished business. Yeah, um, there's a lot in that question. I mean, when you think about the question of security, he had a friend who came to visit him in Washington during the war and discovered him walking alone down Pennsylvania Avenue and said, what are you doing? Aren't you worried about your security? And he said, if I had more bodyguards, that would be like putting up one fence rail where the whole fence was down all the way along. He was fatalistic about it. A fatalist is a word that is often used to describe him. He had this notion, destiny doesn't feel like quite the right word, but he had various ideas through his life of everything being determined in advance. But had, not an openly pious person. Not, not at all a pious person. I mean, not, not, not an, an overtly religious person. He never was a member of a church which means he never signed up to a specific creed, but he would from time to time and increasingly write about God. And sometimes the force that was ordering the whole universe and moving people around in his mind was God, and he would write about, write about that. But he had this sense of how much was beyond our control and was in that way prepared to die at some point. And there's another way that I think he was prepared to die, which is just that he was familiar with death. They were in the middle of a war where hundreds of thousands of people were killed. And Drew Gilpin Faust, later the president of Harvard University, wrote a really interesting book about the culture of death at that time. And it's different than our time because people admitted they were going to die rather than spending a lot of money pretending they were not going to die. And so he was kind of, kind of, uh, kind of ready for that and nevertheless went forward in confidence. I mean, it's one of the great contradictions of this man that he had this belief in his head that it had all been foreordained, but at the same time, he kept trying to change things. He kept trying to improve things. Uh, and you said at the last uh, how Reconstruction would be different. Of course, he was killed right at the end of the war and a way worse president took over who wanted the South to rejoin the Union as close as possible to what it had been without slavery. Andrew Johnson was one of these conciliatory kind of Lincoln measures. He was put in as a vice presidential candidate in the interest of what? He was put in as a, presidential, a vice presidential candidate because he had been a loyal citizen of Tennessee, a state that seceded. And so it was a symbolic act of union, of reconciling those who favored the union in the South. As a symbolic act, um, it made a lot of, uh, made a lot of sense. Um, and I think that's probably the way that a lot of presidential candidates have thought of their vice presidents. You know, what can we get politically? And there was something that Lincoln got politically from Andrew Johnson. And there was just the unfortunate fact of him being a drunk and also like not thinking things through very well. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, I hope I'm saying his name correctly, <coughs> has an amazing book called Black Reconstruction with a very long chapter about Andrew Johnson that's kind of sympathetic and shows how this guy who was born a poor Southerner, a poor man, and had a certain kind of politics, had a certain kind of talent, and had he gone a little differently, he might have used his political talent for good. But he went a little bit this way, 
and ended up being a terrible president. Where was the legacy or succession planning? Again, not trying to be cliche in a business school, but you know, if he was, he was the legacy fatal, plan. If yeah, he was, was fatalistic it. about this, if he knew that he was only long for this earth so long, it was a fraught time. The country was going to have to be stitched together. People were mourning. There were amputees everywhere. Blood still on the grounds. Richmond still smoldering. Why didn't he think about the movement? Well, let me suggest something else about Lincoln's thinking that I think that Lincoln would not have thought too much of it because he had a certain humility, a certain modesty, and a certain idea of the role of public officials in a republic. He was only supposed to hold that office for a time. He was not going to like win an election and then start talking about winning election after election after election. In fact, he said this explicitly. He even said after he was elected president, if I turn out to be a terrible president, I'm only going to be here for a little while and there's only so much damage I can do because pretty soon somebody else is going to be president. And that's actually the way that our republic, our democracy is supposed to work. It's not supposed to be up to one guy. It is supposed to be up to all of us or a lot of us in a lot of different capacities from other officials, members of Congress, to active citizens, people who are thoughtful and who vote properly. And one from among us is supposed to be picked to be the boss for a minute and move on. And that is the way that Lincoln saw his job, the way that he said he was going to do his job. And in that sense, maybe he didn't worry about succession because he didn't think that it was a dynasty and that he was supposed to hold on forever. He was going to go out the door one way or another. Steve, I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you in the six minutes or so we have left that the monuments came down in Richmond I've in heard. 2020. And if you go up to the VMFA, you could see mm. Kahinde Wiley's rumors of war. Mm. U.S. Grant is gone. Jeb Stewart, all these guys are gone. And that's, it's why it's so poignant that, you know, this unfinished business that then culminated in really a lot of the unrest of 2020 and that conversation and that reconciliation. And we're still in Richmond today and we're talking about, right. you know, the Confederate flag going into the Capitol and the insurrection and a decent chunk of the electorate not believing that insurrection potentially happened. I guess I'm trying to ask you, like, what is the unfinished business from Lincoln's body of work? First, what is really, what do you think if he could be here today witnessing this, seeing the 160 years that have transpired, what would he say? First, I hope he would say, buy a book about Lincoln. <laughs> <clears throat> Something that dwells on our differences and uh, offers kind of case histories, so to speak. No, I joke. I joke. I think about that, like, what would Lincoln make of this country? I think that first he would adapt to circumstances. He would adapt to what we are. He would not necessarily be the guy who was walking around saying, what is the matter with you people? How come you're no longer wearing big hats? And why? where's all the railroads? I mean, I don't think he'd be, you know, one of those guys. And we can, like, think of him in our own lives. I mean, we all have a tendency at some point, possibly in our youth, to get fixed in our head the way things are. And then everything that happens after that is horrible. You know, you're like, move into a neighborhood, and that's the neighborhood that's perfect, and it's the way it's always been. And as soon as they start doing some development down the street, you're horrified and, and outraged. And I don't think that he would be that he would be that person. He would adapt to circumstances, and he would need to. He was innovative in his own time. The media were constantly changing and developing in his own time, and he used the media really well. And I think that if you were a political leader today, he would probably figure out, what can I do with social media? What can I do uh, with TikTok? Lincoln on TikTok. <laughs> TikTok. Um, but I also think that he would probably have a good example for us in choosing his words. It's hard for me to believe that he would like tweet all the time, you know? I think he'd pick his moment to say something and give some value to his words. And I think that he would advise us to look at politics in a particular way. For Lincoln, in the way that he spoke, politics was not personal, meaning that it's very hard to find personal attacks in the writings and speeches of Abraham Lincoln. There is that one time that he mocked a guy in a newspaper and the guy challenged him to a duel. But setting that aside, that was early in his career. Lincoln would attack someone's ideas. He would say, your ideas are wrong, and let me give you a long line of reasoning as to why your ideas are wrong. Lincoln would not say you are evil, you are horrible. Even slave owners, he would not say you're an evil person. He would say you're part of an evil system. 
and the enemy here is the system. That is the thing that we want to change. But on a human level, I understand why you act in your self-interest and why you're doing what you're doing, and I just hope to defeat you at the ballot box. And he would encourage us, I think, to look at politics that way, that it's not personal, it's people pursuing their interests and hopefully the greater interest of the country, and as many of us as possible need to work together to do that. And that in making politics a little bit less personal, we can also think about our interests and the interests of the country and how best to advance them practically. I believe a lot of us today have gotten the impression that politics is a morality play, where the job is to show your virtue by shouting the loudest and shouting down other people who are a little bit or a lot wrong and who may well even deserve it. But that's maybe not the most practical way to advance your interests. You need to think about the way that you can make coalitions with other people, not everybody, because you can't get everybody to agree. You probably wouldn't want to agree with everybody. But can you assemble a large enough coalition, a majority, to support the basic institutions through which we mediate all of our other differences? I think he would encourage us to focus on that and to think long-term rather than the immediate insult, the immediate supposed crisis. I think he would encourage us to think about things we can do that'll be better in five years or 10 years or 20. Steve, I have to tell you uh, by way of gratitude, I am so grateful to grow up a Civil War buff reading about these things and to have a public radio career and to get to do something like this, to geek out with Stephen Skeep on Abraham Lincoln, it's just self-actualization for me. And I'm taking a chapter from like charm and persuasion in this. Stuff. Oh, cool, that's yeah. great. Oh, it's effective. It's this, doing this research has influenced the way that I think about people, the way that I deal with my kids, a lot of different things I think about. I cannot thank you enough. Steven thank Skeev. You. Thank you. Full disclosure, special thanks to the University of Richmond Dean Miguel Quinones, our spiritual sponsor, our backer, with Andy Miner, who's like the CEO of the show. Just, I could not do it without you guys. Thanks to the crew at Notterly. We have Claire and Case, Jason, Charles, Kim, AV team at the university. Thank you to PR and Tom Adonisio, Dara Vicheski, Courtney Ennis at the university. This show again, podcast to NPR, Spotify, all fine podcatchers. The link, again, please subscribe, is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. A shout out to our listeners on NPR member station, WBTF Radio IQ. You could catch some of the crew here today. Roger Duvall is here. Thank you, sir. You can see Brad Cutner be outside in the reception. Holler if you two would like to catch us on your air. And in the meantime, you could catch me on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week. <laughs>